Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this special episode, Cornell University Press Editorial Director Mahindra Kingra and Cornell author David Lehman share their fascination with and in-depth knowledge of the style of noir. In this spirited conversation, recorded in front of a live audience at Buffalo Street Books in Ithaca, they discuss the many novels, poems, and films featured in David's new book, The Mysterious Romance of Murder, Crime, Detection, and the Spirit of Noir. We hope you enjoy their insights and observations. Welcome. We're here to talk about The Mysterious Romance of Murder, and um, I just want to start and talk about how this book came about. So David and I were talking about 100 autobiographies over drinks, really nice Negronis, as I recall. Um, and we started we sort of started sharing our love of uh, noir films, and um, I think we were both surprised at our depth of knowledge. And I usually am used to being the person in the room who knows the most about the the genre. And I was, you know, the the uh, you eclipsed everything I might know. You you had actors' names at your fingertips and plots. It was amazing. And I think I sort of recklessly said, we sh you should write a book about this. This should be your next book. Um, and you said to me, well, in fact, you've written a lot about this in various pieces. And could we bring together those um, and turn it into a book? And over the next sort of year, year and a half, that's what we did. And it was such a satisfying experience for me. Um, I learned a lot reading the book and um, and actually used it. I was, did a road trip and used it on a, a trip, sort of used this as a reading guide for the books I took with me. And so picked up The High Window, which I'd never read before, uh, Raymond Chandler, um, because you write about it in there, about cocktails in particular, and the bland cocktails right. that he makes in that book, as opposed to some others. So let's talk about... I think it was made into the Brasher Double. It was, yes. With George Montgomery in the role of Philip Marlowe. Yeah. I, I think William Holden should have played Philip Marlowe yeah. at some point. That would have been, yeah, Montgomery was flat in the role. Well... But we've had very good uh, Marlowe's. We have. <laughs> Your favorite would be? Well, I guess I guess Bogart is just the one that you think of because of the big sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, you are uh, very enthusiastic about Dick Powell in I Murder, like Dick My Powell. Sweet, and I think he's terrific. Yeah. Uh, I like Robert Mitchum, too, in Farewell, My Lovely. Uh, perhaps, uh, well, it's 30 years after Dick Powell. Uh, but um, he, he's following the Joe DiMaggio hitting <laughs> streak, and he's Robert Mitchum. He's really yeah. perfect uh, noir character with, uh, with the uh, fedora. He looks and, great in that. And the cigarette. Yeah, yeah. he's... Uh, I think we disagree on uh, Elliot Gould <laughs> as Philip Marlowe in The Long Goodbye, Altman's Long Goodbye, which I like a lot, but... It's definitely, it's either sacrilege or deconstruction, or maybe deconstruction is sacrilege, but. I, I, I think very highly of Elliot Gould. I, and I, I think he's a very nice guy, and, uh, <laughs> and, I, and a very talented actor, too. Yeah. So I, uh, I have nothing mean to say about No, him. not mean, but he's d provocatively, deliberately miscast, maybe. Well, Robert Altman's idea of uh, a uh, thriller is so heavily laden with a certain kind of comedy. And look at the uh, MASH, mm -hmm. the 
the first time it came out, I thought it was hilarious, and it, it is, I guess, but the second time I saw it, I, I wasn't as happy about the way the woman is, um, is treated. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not a, you know, the number one feminist in, in, the, in the world, but I, I don't like it when, um, you know, Jean Hagen was a tremendous actress, and, and she was in the Asphalt Jungle. She's Sterling Hayden's uh, lady. And she can do anything on, but you know, she's in Singing in the Rain as the uh, incredibly vain, vulgar uh, character that, and, and, and she's shamed at the end of the movie. And uh, I, I love all those Gene Kelly mu musicals of the uh, early 50s, but I, I don't like it as much as an American in Paris, mm -hmm. Singing in the Rain. And that's one of the reasons, yeah. uh, even though in Singing in the Rain, Nina Fosh takes it on the chin, but not as bad as... Yeah. Uh, Where they Jean reveal the, her accent, her... Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I know, it's maybe a silly <laughs> reaction. Um, uh, but you, I, I should say, Mahindra is a tremendous editor, and uh, he came over uh, on an August day during the... Um, uh, was it, oh, it was before. Before the pandemic. Just before the pandemic, and we had Negronis, and uh, they really were good. Yeah. Because I, I am a very proud mixologist. Uh, and as he said, we, we were talking, and I would say, oh, I love uh, Eric Ambler, and he'd say, oh, that's one of my favorites, and uh, the conversation grew into a book, and as always happens when you write a book, you think this is going to be a slam dunk, you know? Uh, just like finding nuclear uh, warheads in uh, Iraq. <laughs> it was gonna be a slam dunk, you know? But then, well, it turns out that it's really a lot of work because you rewrite what you wrote, and then you write new essays, and, and you, really improved it, especially if you have a demanding <laughs> editor. But demanding is good, because editors don't, with uh, this prominent exception, and perhaps a few others, don't do what editors are supposed to do. They don't read what you write and cr tell you, take this out, or add this, or th this paragraph could be strengthened. Or, um, and Mahinder uh, doesn't, uh, shy from making suggestions. Well, it was, I th it was a wonderfully collaborative experience, and I liked that even when you were submitting the final version, you said, oh, but I really want to write about this. I've got an essay. Can I include this? And I liked that idea that we were, um, it was still collaborative. And then I think at one point, um, you're like, oh, we have to take something out, because. That's right. Uh, the quiz, we took out the quiz. Yes. Uh, and so I, th I felt like the whole process was just so much more collaborative than I'm used to dealing with. And I really, I really enjoyed that and really, um, it was such a satisfying experience, so. It, it was a lot of fun. There was a section I took out, it was called the uh, Hitchcock Quiz. And, and the idea was that the, it was multiple choice and uh, um, where the wrong answers were supposed to be entertaining. Uh, but, uh, Paul Oster read the book, and he said, oh, I love this book, but take out take the Hitchcock out. quiz, because the questions are too easy. 
<laughs> he kind of missed the point, but well, uh, but I think yeah, we can we can do the second edition can have the. Well, the, 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 the wise thing with writing is that if you have a smart reader, uh, a really smart reader, and says, uh, I don't know if this works, and you've got a book that's still 300 pages, you know, it's, it's, it's a good idea to uh, take something out. Uh, you, you don't need to add length uh, if there's any question about it. And, an old college friend who's a very successful writer tells you that he thinks, oh, it'd be perfect without that. Well, <laughs> yeah, you'd be hard pressed to say, ah, we'll go our own way. Yeah. Well, we could. <laughs> he, he wouldn't have been angry or anything. But, uh, but that's how the book began. And also the pandemic came along and this incredible catastrophe. Uh, the only silver lining is that I got to watch a lot of noir movies. <laughs> and I'm the sort who likes to watch a movie four times, if I like it, uh, or two dozen times. I, I think I've seen The Bridge on the River Kwai two dozen times. Uh, the Godfather I've probably seen 50 times, you know, and uh, know the script by heart, you know, that, like other men of my generation, I think. <laughs> Uh, so we saw, my wife and I, and also my son, uh, we saw a lot of movies during the pandemic that, you know, fit right into this theme. And I got to read mystery novels. And it's, it's a great trick in life to take something that you love and, and make it a paying proposition. That, uh, although, of course, there's a negative to that too, but... Uh, but, I, uh, but it was a wonderful project to undertake, and the uh, cover is great, and it's all his idea. Um, so let's, let's go to the beginning and talk about how you first came upon your love of mysteries and of noir films, and when did that happen, and were you a sort of a serious young man who avoided the you know, sort of genre stuff, or was it always sort of baked into your love of reading and writing? Well, um, a major event happened when I was uh, graduating from college. And there was a double bill of the Maltese Falcon and the Big Sleep. And I'd never seen either of them. They were at the New Yorker movie house, which doesn't exist anymore. And David Anderson, another writer, uh, suggested that we go see them. And I thought, wow, this is, uh, they're, they're really great movies. They have the same main actor, Humphrey Bogart a different supporting cast, and one of them, there's Peter Laurie and Sidney Greenstreet and Mary Astor, and, and, and the movie's really faithful to the book. And the other one, the plot is completely incoherent, but you do have Lauren Bacall, and you have Eddie Mars in a tuxedo at the casino, and she sings, and her tears flowed like wine. She's a, She's a real sad tomato. <laughs> She's a busted valentine. Uh, so these, these were wonderful. I went to England on a Kellogg fellowship for two years, and I thought I would love it. I, I spent two summers in England and, and loved them And uh, but that summer. And uh, when fall starts fading into winter, 
and you're talking about the early 1970s, and they don't know from central heating. Uh, and, uh, and they have weather. <laughs> they, they really it's damp. Have, it's damp all the time. From very damp. Yeah. And if you're a bookish fellow, you don't know how properly to dress for it. Uh, anyway, uh, I missed, I was homesick, and I went to a bookstore and bought Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, and I thought, hey, these guys are really good stylists. And I decided I would write my master's essay on on this, which I thought that was uh, unconventional, and, uh, and at the time it was, you know, uh, now it's not, it wouldn't be. Uh, I think it's recognized that Raymond Chandler is a very good writer, or, or Dashiell Hammett, and, and others too, but it was a radical uh, uh, move. I mean, they would uh, be more likely to encourage you to write about Keats, who is, you know, a, a really greater figure than, uh, than the mystery writers were talking about. But a lot of others were writing about Keats, and uh, or, or uh, so I, that's where it started, and I kept reading. Uh, and sometimes when you finished a project, you don't want to do much more about it. Uh, I wrote a book called Signs of the Times about deconstruction and Paul DeMond, and, uh, and I thought this was a book that really needed to be written because I, I thought it was ha having such a pernicious effect on the academic world. Uh, but a year or two after, and when you write a book, especially one that makes a splash, as that one did, for the next couple of years, you're going to be making appearances, lectures, debates. You're going to be debating, you're going to be attacked, you're going to be really involved. And after that period, I, I'm really not interested in writing about that movement. I, I just, in, in part because I, it's, I, I'd rather write about things I like. Um, otherwise, it would, be, it would be real work. I, th I think one could write a very good book about the effects, you know, 30 years after my other book. But, uh, the, uh, but some loves, you know, survive. Uh, you're writing a book? Or, uh, anyway, I, I was at Newsweek magazine as a book reviewer in the 1980s, and um, I was very eager to make it as a, as a freelance writer, and, uh, and mysteries were one thing I could write about. But I began by writing about poetry. Uh, you're not going to get a chance to review a poetry book each week at Newsweek <laughs> when it was, you know, a real magazine. So you have to write about other things. And, and so uh, if you write a book, if you review a book about military history because you happen to be interested in the bombing of Monte Cassino in Italy, that establishes you in the minds of your editors as like a go-to person for military history. So you wind up becoming something of an authority because they, they give you a dozen books over the next two years about the Civil War or World War II. And, but mysteries were one, and we did a cover story, and the guy who was supposed to do the cover story uh, didn't do it, and so we had less than the usual lead time. And, uh, and I, 
I agreed to <laughs> crash the cover, to use their jargon. And I wrote a cover story. I got a book uh, contract out, out of it. And um, I, I'd I reviewed Elmore Leonard when people had never heard of him. I, I reviewed uh, P.D. James. But that, that's when she was cresting. I, I reviewed Ruth Rendell. I reviewed uh, Edmund Bain a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned style when talking about the uh, sort of Chandler as stylist. To you, what is noir style? And what distinguishes it from other either within the genre or just from writing other fictions? Well, um, I, I would read just a few sentences. Uh, I think noir is a, a style. I mean, the question, what is noir, is a good question. Um, I have to put on this apparatus in order to see. Uh, there's, a sec there's a chapter here called Paradise of the Damned, which I think uh, as a uh, chapter title, I, I really like it as uh, a uh, description of noir, Paradise of the Damned, because damnation and failure are inherent in this genre. At the same time, there's something that really attracts us, and I think it's a matter of style. So uh, uh, Nick Christopher, uh, the poet, uh, wrote, what is noir, and then he gave the following possible answers, a state of mind, an aesthetic school, a philosophy, an ethos, a sensibility, an attitude, a symbolic system, something undefinable, a kind of raw poetry, or is it first and foremost a style? And I write, noir shares in all these things, and the resort to metaphor is the result. Christopher opts for the dark mirror reflecting the underside of American urban life, a place as full of vice and fallen angels as the Paris evoked a century earlier by Charles Baudelaire in his poems and prose poems. I like Christopher's metaphor because the mirror is the locus of the uncanny, where the doubles twin halves meet and sometimes recoil from the encounter. And I'm fond of Robert C. Odmack's 1946 movie, The Dark Mirror, in which Olivia de Havilland plays twin sisters, one virtuous, the other vicious, a popular Hollywood trope. But Betty Davis also does very well. Uh, fumbling for a definition, I'll second uh, Nick Christopher's list, double down on style, and add an epigraph from Baudelaire after rejecting what others say is the greatest pleasure in love, to give, to receive, to enjoy the pleasure of pride or the voluptuousness of humility, Baudelaire asserts that the sole and supreme pleasure in love lies in the absolute knowledge of doing evil. And man and woman know from birth that in evil is to be found all voluptuousness. In exactly this sense, movies informed by the spirit of noir are love stories featuring a man and a woman who are damned from birth, exiled from Eden, and drawn together by an erotic and transgressive impulse so strong that it overrides all scruple and moral restraint. The Argentine cop in Gilda, the 1946 movie, 
who has watched Gilda, Rita Hayworth, and Johnny, Glenn Ford, constantly quarrel, says, you two kids love each other very terribly, don't you? I hate her, Johnny replies. That's what I mean, the cop says. Uh, so, um, and then, oh, here another, a few more sentences about noir. Uh, well, one, one thing about style is that Raymond Chandler's style is very imitable in the sense that it depends on wisecracks that are often uh, hyperbolic, but a, a muted hyperbole. Like, uh, she was um, smoking a cigarette from a holder that was not quite the length of an umbrella. <laughs> or she sat behind a desk that was uh, not nearly the size of Napoleon's tomb. <laughs> so, uh, uh, from 30 feet away, she looked like a lot of class. From 10 feet away, she looked like something made up to be seen from 30 feet away. <laughs> <laughs> That's Raymond uh, Chandler. Uh, the wisecrack is, is, is an essential uh, element. But then uh, here are a few sentences that give you an idea of the style. Uh, the, the damsel in distress sobs to the police, I've told you all I know. Husband Zachary Scott of the pencil mustache and contemptuous sneer knits his brows but it can't help looking bitchy. There's nothing for you to be ashamed of. Both are lying. Eve Arden officiates at a party for the suspects, witnesses, and extras. It's a shame to waste two perfectly good mouths on you, she remarks when a pair of gossiping girlfriends gets on her nerves. But the true note is sounded by the red-haired temptress in the South American nightclub. If I had been a ranch, They'd have called me Bar Nun. <laughs> That's Rita Hayworth. Uh, noir is where pessimism meets desperation, and darkness is as visible as in Byron's vision of stars that wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Noir is the paradise of the, of the damned. It is where foolproof plans meet their graveyard fates. The plans are always foolproof. An ex-con and three buddies plan to rob the safe of a jewelry store on the Rue de Rivoli in Paris, and they do it in 30 minutes of film time without music or talk. They even make off with the loot, but Surely this is a sentence that should end with but. <laughs> Noir is one last heist, one roll of the dice. Risk is requisite. Got to take chances, Paul Henry tells his co-conspirators in the hollow triumph. That's the overhead in our racket. So uh, those are some, some paragraphs. Uh, so, so does the style, t does it speak to the romantic in you, or to the fatalist in you, or to the cynic in you? What is that style? Or is it a combination of all of them? Well, I, for, first of all, I love the style of the period. 
in fashion. If you see the movies of the 40s, uh, not just noirs, but you'll see that the, the women dress uh, magnificently and they have hats <laughs> that, are, that are not goofy, but they're, they're I mean, you see Barbara Stanwyck wearing a different a beret or a cap or, I mean, they, they, they look fantastic. And, uh, and the men, the, the, the gangsters are wearing double-breasted suits. They're climbing up hills and chasing people wearing double-breasted suits and driving Packards. And, I mean, this is uh, it's a very hot, classy, you know, the, the villain in The Big Sleep uh, is the casino uh, magnate in a tuxedo. Uh, and uh, so there's a sense of style in fashion and then in language, you know, the, the dialogue. I mean, these are really written, these uh, movies. They have real writers. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's an element that I like very, very much uh, as well. Um, let's talk about elements. One of the sections of the book is called Elements of Crime. It's, I think, probably my favorite section of the book. Is it? And you, yeah, you talk about cigarettes. You talk about basically the props of, of noir in particular. Um, cigarettes, uh, Cocktail. cocktails, and song. And song. Why did, how do you, uh, now I wish we'd done a one on women's hats, clearly. That, that would have been. <laughs> and fedoras. And fedoras, yeah. I, I happen to wear hats. Uh, 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 I love, I have a whole collection of fedoras. And it's a shame that, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy did, a, did not wear a hat. And suddenly, the hat industry suffered the same way the undershirt industry suffered in the 1930s when Clark Gable took off his shirt and it happened one night and wasn't wearing an undershirt. It rebounded a little when Marlon Brando wore a <laughs> wife beater in, uh, on the waterfront. But, uh, so talk about those three elements, the cigarette, cocktail, the music, whichever one you want. Well, cigarettes, I still, uh, every time I see a movie, just the other day I, I was watching uh, Roman Holiday and Gregory Peck and Eddie Albert teach uh, Audrey Hepburn how to smoke. And she says, see, I can do it. I, I, it's easy. And, uh, and, and so every so often you see, or in uh, Sunset Boulevard, Norma Desmond, uh, played by uh, Gloria Swanson. Uh, William Holden does the voiceover and says that she, she, to me, she was as hideous as that cigarette holder. She, and she has a weird cigarette holder. And so I'm, I still wish I could add to that chapter on cigarettes because they're, they're universal. Women, men, uh, they, it's automatic. Uh, and I miss them myself. Uh, and I have a collection of ashtrays, like in memoriam. Uh, and they're, it's, they're, it's fascinating the way cigarettes play in, uh, in the movies. Yeah, you write about how in Double Indemnity, the great love scene is actually when uh, Robin, Edward G. Robinson is lighting oh. a cigarette for Fred McMurray, a dying Fred McMurray, spoiler alert, dying Fred McMurray. <laughs> um, and that's, that's played out almost like a love scene. 
Yes, and also, in, it's funny because throughout that movie, Edward G. Robinson is a cigar smoker in this movie and never has a match. And, and uh, says, hey, uh, light, light me up, will you, uh, Walter? Walter Neff. And so at the very end of the movie, uh, Fred McMurray, who's Walter Neff, has come to the end of the line. And, uh, and so in a perfect, ironic reversal, his cigarette is lit by the older man who, uh, and, <laughs> and during the movie, uh, they have an interesting relationship. And Fred McMurray would say, uh, after Edward G. Robinson walks out, say, you young uh, people don't work hard enough. Fred McMurray would say, I love you too. And that's the last line in the movie. Only this time, it's not a, entirely a quip. I, I love you too, to his father figure. Uh, and it's very, very interesting. Um, but I, another example, if you, you've seen The Godfather, some of you have seen that movie from 1972. Has anyone seen the movie? <laughs> a, a few. Well, they have an all Godfather all the time station now. Oh, really? No, they don't, but they should. But there's a scene where Michael, the son, the third son, and the one who, the chosen one in some way, is uh, he's not in the crime family. He, he's the one who was supposed, who went to Dartmouth and then the Marines. But he goes to the hospital because the, the uh, cops have come and taken away all the guards from the, the uh, wounded father, the godfather, that is Don Corleone. And uh, the baker's son-in-law comes along whom the godfather had, uh, had aided in the very first scene in the movie, getting him into the country through one of our, you know, well, don't we have a Jew congressman who can uh, handle that for us? Uh, and uh, so the two of them stand there, and Michael says to uh, the uh, baker, he said, just uh, put your hands in your pockets as if you know, you've got guns. <laughs> and, uh, and they uh, take out cigarettes. And uh, Michael uh, lights a cigarette, and the baker is like, <laughs> and Michael lights his cigarette. And so this tells you something about who, how cool that fellow is under pressure. Mm -hmm. And this is before he goes to the restaurant with the best deal in the city and does something there that I'm not going to give away if you haven't seen the movie because it's, one of, it's, a, it's very climactic. Uh, it all ends really well for all, for all involved. Well. <laughs> now, I, I, I never smoked, but I always thought that one of the, the, the sexiest things you could do was to have two cigarettes and light one and then give it to. Yeah, Paul Henry. Exactly. And, uh, he loved that. Uh, he did that with Betty Davis at the end of, uh, um, what is it, Dark Victory? Dark Victory. But he does it in other movies, yeah. too. Uh, he's a great smoker.
She's <laughs> tremendous smoker. You know, and she says, uh, 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 what's her line? It's going to be a bumpy evening. Be a bumpy. Yeah. She's got a That's what it's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> She's got that cigarette hand, you know. It's like, no one's going to take that away yeah. from me. And that Bogart out of the corner of his mouth. I mean, it's interesting, though, that line is from All About Eve, oh, yeah, right. which is not a noir at all, and yet so informed by yes. noir. There's a real noir sensibility to that as well, the fast talking and the sort of the, the backstabbing, and it's like woman's picture reimagined as... It's a great movie, and it is a, a woman's uh, picture. Yeah, that was, sorry, a genre term. Not, no, I, I, I was not being <laughs> condescending. That's, I, I think that's a really That's good what Sam Goldwyn would have called it. But I think it's a really good term for, you know, certain movies that I wish they would be making like a brief encounter would be in that category with uh, Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson Johnson Terrific. or letter to three wives with Ann Southern married to Kirk Douglas and uh, uh, Linda Darnell married to, to uh, Paul Douglas and Jean Crane as the third wife letters to uh, all about it these are quote chick flicks uh, I was uh, uh, the poet Jennifer Knox asked uh, uh, friends to write about their favorite chick flicks, so I wrote about Br Brief Encounter. But All About Eve would be a great example. All you needed would be a murder in the... Yeah. That's all and you, they almost do. I mean, you, you've... Yes, in fact, if we could reimagine it, <laughs> figure out who would be the corpse. Yeah. And who would be the killer. Yeah. And everyone fun. would suspect Betty Davis. Yeah, but she wouldn't be the one. She, she would she not be the killer. Yeah. She'd have too much class. <laughs> in fact, the one unbelievable thing in that movie is the idea that Ann Baxter could possibly upstage <laughs> Betty Davis. She had a good agent, Ann Baxter. That's, and that's not, I don't, I don't like putting down Ann Baxter. She's okay, but Betty Davis. <laughs> and cocktails. You, you watch one of these movies, any movie from the 40s, the first thing that happens, or even Perry Mason TV shows, you, you visit somebody, and the first thing that happens, would you want a drink? That's the very first thing. Now, I don't know if that's true in your lives, and you go visit someone. But there's always a decanter, a really nice crystal decanter. And with an ice bucket. Filled with ice. And it's all... It's all so li liquor is really important, and of course, uh, it's consumed quite a lot by, you know, different characters. Sometimes in a very unhappy way, but sometimes it's just so uh, uh, the social aspect, the like, um, how do I get these two characters to negotiate something? Put them in a bar, <laughs> and put Bogart and call in the bar, and. She's supposed to try to tell him to get off the case. That's what the plot requires. So in the background, the pianist is playing, I guess I'll have to change my plan. <laughs> M meanwhile, the two of them are really attracted to each other. And in fact, their husband and wife and the well-known romance. And so suddenly, uh, plot uh, requirements to the winds they start flirting, and they have this horse racing um, metaphor. How would you rate me? Well, you like to ride from behind. And, uh, 
And, the, and in the background, the piano player is playing, uh, we'll have a new room for two rooms, a blue room where every day is holiday because you're married to me. So, uh, you know, the drinks uh, are part of the... There's that great scene in the Maltese Falcon when uh, Sidney Greenstreet has the drink with uh, um, Humphrey Bogart and it's Mickey, you know. Yes. <laughs> here's to clean living and pure understanding. Here, here's to plain speaking and clear understanding. <laughs> so, uh, so you can say why and say, I, uh, it's, I don't trust them. Uh, I always like a man who doesn't say when. <laughs> Sydney Greenstreet, and, and it is—it's a Mickey and uh, knocks him out. Uh, right, but that here's the clear understanding, plain speaking, and clear understanding. I think but, one of the best openings to any movie, I guess, is uh, the Thin Man, which is the great oh, celebration yeah. of married love, where <laughs> where uh, Myrna Loy walks into the bar. And she says, you know, how many has he had? And you think, oh no, this is going to be a typical scene where she's going to reprimand the bartender for giving her husband too much alcohol. And he says, six. And she goes, line them up here. <laughs> and she drinks them all in order. I think that to me is just the perfect way, introduction to a character and to a relationship. Yeah. Because you realize exactly what they, and it's all through liquor. Yes, uh, I think she says, either in the book or in the movie, she says, uh, uh, Maybe we shouldn't drink today or something. And he, he says, that's what, that's what we came to New York to do. <laughs> uh, and I, I think in the second movie, maybe, they have to call Nick Charles home. She's in the apartment building. She opens the window and shakes the cocktail. And you see him in the park below, <laughs> looking like this and saying, I, and heads home. Uh, another great beginning is uh, where the sidewalk ends is the uh, second movie with Dana Andrews and Gene Tierney. The more famous one is Laura. And where the sidewalk ends, I think also made by Otto Preminger, is a great role for Dana Andrews because he's, uh, he's a cop, but he, he's like the son of a criminal. And his ins he's really a tortured character. But the very beginning has this incredibly great music by Alfred Newman called Street Scene over the opening credits. And that's, uh, uh, that's fabulous. But you know, speaking of music, I, I, um, I mentioned how the big sleep, you have the, those songs in the background. This, Soundtracks are very important and reflect the genius of the songwriters of that time and how you know the songs really fit either an ironic counterpoint or illustration of what is going on in the movie. Uh, and uh, at the end of the, the Big Sleep, you know, the last shot in the Big Sleep is two cigarettes in an ashtray. <laughs> That's the closing shot. Um, and that has very good music by, I think, Max Steiner. I think it's Max Steiner, yeah. But uh, there's a, um, uh, so there are lots, lots of great examples of how, you know, in, um, 
out of the past, you'll hear, uh, come out, come out wherever you are, or uh, what songs they've chosen. And, uh, but in my, in my view, one of the great um, uses of, of music in that period was uh, not in a, uh, in a noir. Uh, that is, in the noirs, you, you know, David Raxon's most famous piece of music is the theme from Laura. Uh, in Double Indemnity, you're going to hear Schubert's Unfinished and Tangerine in the same scene. That's, you're going to hear the slow movement of the Schubert and the song Tangerine, she is all they claim. It's a great song, Victor Skirtsinger with the Johnny's Bursar lyric. Uh, so, uh, you know, all of these uh, uh, Bacall sings how little we know in um, uh, to have and have not. And so I, I write about a lot of these, but there was one movie that um, could not be called no noir. Uh, and yet, I think the music is, is magnificent. Now, this is the best years of our lives. And uh, Frederick March, one of the three guys who's come home from the war, and uh, when he walks into the apartment where his wife, Myrna Loy, there's a, actually a scene where he's standing here and she's standing there and it's a long corridor and it's sort of like if, if, if it's a tearjerker this is where the tears are beginning uh, to form and uh, Frederick March the dad gives his son some souvenirs that he got from Japan from the battlefield in the Pacific and the son is like not as impressed with this, uh, the sword, the Japanese sword, or this, the souvenirs. Well, that night, they, uh, all the guys uh, who have returned, and their wives, girlfriends, daughters, uh, all wind up at a bar owned by Hoagie Carmichael, <laughs> who you know is one of the great songwriters and who plays piano. And Frederick Marx says, "Do you know?" He's completely drunk. He has two drunk scenes in this movie. They're really good. He says, you know, among my souvenirs. And Hoagie Carmichael plays. It's a wonderful song. And, and they're dead. Well, he comes home, and the next morning when he wakes up, he sees a photo of his wife. And that's a real souvenir. That's much. And, and, in the sh and he's humming among my souvenirs, in the shower, and the music is in the background. And so it, 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 it governs this entire scene. The only problem is the best years of our lives ends with a wedding and an engagement and a happy couple. Uh, so what's it going to do in my book? But I thought, you know, <laughs> I thought it's an, it's an anti-noir. You know, so this is what I wrote. Uh, a drunken Frederick March and his game wife, Myrna Loy, danced to Among My Souvenirs on his first night back from the war in the best years of our lives. Although the movie is not a noir, love conquers all and no one dies, the best years of our lives is from the noir era, the black and white 1940s, and can be seen to represent an equal and opposite impulse 
and anti-noir. In the movie are a disabled serviceman who has hooks for hands and an Air Force hotshot who can't hold a job, even the lowly job of being a soda jerk fixing Sundays for kids in a drugstore. If we were in a noir, handless Homer Parrish and fallen angel of the Air Force Fred Derry, Dana Andrews, would team up with perhaps the army vet who needs a loan to buy the land for a farm but does not meet the understanding bank executive played by Frederick March. <laughs> so the three plot to rob the bank. And while they plan and rehearse the crime, they pair off with dames. They meet at the bar where the piano player funds the operation and plays the day, the night we called it a day. The man with hooks for hands has qualms about shooting an armed guard, but the ex-pilot overrules him. It's easy to have ethics when you're ahead in the game, he says. Clinging to the roughneck would-be farmer, the tipsy nightclub singer says, please, Len, I'm begging you. Tell me I'm a woman. <laughs> but we are not in a noir, and director William Wyler's use of Among My Souvenirs is too good to go unmentioned. And then I have a, a, a really brilliant paragraph that says what I was saying in an improvised way before about uh, the use of music in the best years of our lives, but it's much better in writing. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll read it. Uh, it says, trinkets and tokens diligently collected offer some consolation, which is a, a phrase in, in the song, uh, but do nothing to stop the flow of tears. In the best years of our lives, when the US Army Sergeant played by Frederick March comes home, he brings souvenirs of the Pacific War as gifts for his teenage son. But like the knife in Elizabeth Bishop's poem, Crusoe in England, when it has become a souvenir on the shelf after Crusoe returns home from his island, the mementos of conflict have lost their meaning. They seem vaguely unreal, lifeless, unlike the photograph of his wife that a hungover March looks at the next morning. A different sort of souvenir, it has all the meaning in the world for him. And among my souvenirs, played on the piano by Hoagie Carmichael, hummed in the shower by a hungover march, and heard his background music, unifies the whole sequence and endows it with the rich pathos that makes the song so durable a jazz standard. I recommend that you watch the movie again and that you listen to Art Tatum play Among My Souvenirs on the piano, or if you can find it, a recording of Sinatra and Crosby doing it as a duet on television in the 1950s, which is, is really exceptional because one of them has this really deep baritone and the other has a much higher range. So they, they really harmonized <laughs> very well. Um, there's a new-ish book about the making of Best Years of Our Lives, and it talks about the origins of that's right. And which then connects to poetry, and that's sort of where I wanted to end up. You're known as a poet, and the connections between poetry and noir. Well, I, I, uh, the amazing thing is that I thought I had made up this you know, noir version of the best years of our lives, but in fact, this new book called The Making 
what's it called, making the best years of our lives, the Hollywood classic that inspired a nation. Apparently, the version we see was written by Robert Sherwood. He's a very good writer, Pulitzer Prize winner. I think he was an advisor to FDR. Mm -hmm. uh, but the actual book originated with McKinley Cantor, who was once a very famous writer, and wrote it in blank verse. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And it's, and it's, according to the book, it's three servicemen were too traumatized and embittered and volatile, and uh, the, the one who has hooks for hands, who was the, the real sailor who, who, to whom that happened, played that part. You know, uh, in the script, he, his brains are scrambled. And here, I'll, I'll just read. In Cantor's telling, Al practically rapes Millie his first night back. He later stalks out of the bank to which, he's to which he has unhappily returned, just as Fred, unable to find a decent job himself, is about to rob it. Meanwhile, Homer tries to blow out his own brains, only his unsteady hand saves him. So, in short, Cantor had written a dystopian film noir. And I thought, that's fantastic. And that's why we should in do In blank verse. Well, the, the, all of, that's why we should do All About Eve yeah. as, a, uh, as a noir. Yeah. Like how would, because you have all these wonderful characters, you Marlowe, Gary Merrill, mm -hmm. oh, and uh, always the heel, you know, George. George Sanders, Saunders. Yeah, oh, he's great. Yeah. Uh, you have a lot to play with. And Celeste Holm. She'd be the killer. <laughs> She'd be the least likely suspect. Exactly. <laughs> There'd be some wrong, distant, wrong in the distant past. And I think, uh, yeah. Anyway, that'll be fun. We should, we should work on that. Um, but let's talk about poetry and noir. What, what's, the, what's the connection? I know in the book there are five noir poems that you've written. Um, but you also talk about your correspondence with other poets about their shared, your shared love of noir. And yeah. Well, I talk about uh, some poets like Kevin Young, uh, a Cornell librarian who was a poet, Fred uh, Muratori, uh, Lauren Hilger, Lynn Emanuel. Uh, there are a lot of poets who have written uh, noir-ish poems which attests to the uh, attraction that m many of us feel. And uh, Lynn Emanuel told me that, uh, and I agree with her, that um, a sistina with the repeating words is, is a formula. And film noir is a, is a formula also. Like, you know, you, you uh, uh, at, at a loss for inspiration, you have someone ringing the doorbell and then entering with a gun and shooting. I mean, there's things that happen over and over again. Uh, you know, the, 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 the song about deja vu, some things that happen for the first time seem to be happening again. That's what happens in, in noir. And, uh, so, I, uh, for example, I wrote a pantoum, which is a, a, a form that, uh, in, in which <laughs> John Ashbery said that he liked the, 
the, the, the pantuma is a form because every line appears twice. So, John said, you get twice as much poem for your effort. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a typical Ashbury, isn't that? Uh, yeah, well, here's a, so I wrote a, a pantom called Laura. Then the doorbell rang. Time for one more cigarette. It wasn't Laura's body on the kitchen floor. He is not in love with a corpse. Time for one more cigarette. The venomous drama critic insinuates he is in love with a corpse. It's a typical male-female mix-up. The venomous drama critic knows he is sane. It's a typical male-female mix-up. He thinks she is dead, and she thinks he is rude. Is he sane? Each wonders what the other is doing in her living room. He thinks she is a ghost, and she thinks he is rude, when the picture on the wall becomes a flesh and blood woman. Each wonders what the other is doing in her living room. It hasn't stopped raining. The picture on the wall becomes a flesh and blood woman. Jean Tierney and Laura. It hasn't stopped raining. Dames are always pulling a switch on you, Dana Andrews says in Laura. There was something he was forgetting. Dames are always pulling a switch on you. It wasn't Laura's body on the kitchen floor. There was something he was forgetting. Then the doorbell rang. So you, you see how the repetitions work musically in a way. But they also suggest that, that these things happen over and over again, sometimes with variation. And of course, the, the, this main, the uh, sort of most amazing scene, I think, in the movie <laughs> is that the, uh, the policeman, Mark uh, McPherson, falls asleep in her armchair, not, not knowing that it was Diane Redfern who was killed. Uh, and there's this big picture on the wall of Jean Tierney in all her glory. And he falls asleep. And she comes home from the weekend, not, uh, her radio didn't work. She doesn't know anything about what, it, she walks in and, and uh, what are you doing here? He says, I'm gonna call the police, I, I am the police. And so she, she thinks that he's an intruder and he thinks she's a ghost. It's, uh, it's, it's really fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so I say, oh, it's a typical male-female mix-up, which is, uh, <laughs> A thing about noir also, and the 40s in general, is that women are much more uh, important. They're, they had agency in these movies. Now, it's not always for good. Sometimes they're more evil than the men. And sometimes they're also tougher than the uh, guy. For example, uh, Elizabeth Scott in uh, Too Late for Tears. She's going to outlive uh, Dan Poor Dan Duryea and Arthur Kennedy. Gloria, uh, Gloria Graham in uh, where she throws the coffee in oh, or she gets, Big Heat. She gets the coffee thrown. She gets the coffee, but she's so. tougher. She she takes him out for that. Yeah. Yes, Gloria Graham is one of the great noir actresses. Right. Awesome, good at anything. Yeah. She played Ado Annie in Oklahoma. She could do anything. Yeah. But you know, you see these movies. You see, you know, Ingrid Bergman as a psychiatrist in a Hitchcock movie. 
or as a spy in a Hitchcock movie, uh, or Joan Crawford owning a restaurant, Mildred Pierce, and uh, uh, or even the bad girls, you know, the, like the, the, what, what the Spanish call uh, chingona, like Marie Windsor. Marie Windsor is a real chingona, meaning if you get involved with her, you're, this is femme fatale squared, you know. Uh, they have agency. They, they really affect things. People do things. Robert Mitchum in Out of the Past does amazing things for the love of Jane Greer, though it's been proved to him <laughs> that she's not only unreliable, but she's a thief and in cahoots with a gangster, uh, but the, the pull is so strong. And uh, a point I, uh, I'm making is that you, you, you see these movies, I th and I think it's not an accident that so many women. I, I belong to, to a lot of film noir clubs, uh, like on uh, uh, fake book and other media, social media. And uh, so many, many women are in our, the clubs and you know, have, have opinions. and. Uh, and that's not an accident. I see, I see, I, I see exactly what, why you like that. Yeah. I, I recently rewatched a, a neo-noir from the, I think the 90s, called The Last Seduction, with Linda Fiorentino as perhaps the most fatal of the femme fatales. I should see it again, because I, the first time I saw it, I, uh, I felt threatened. Yeah. <laughs> She's great in that. And, yeah. And every time you think she's going to maybe, oh, she's going to soften a little. It's just another twist. No, she, I saw it with Mark Stevens uh, in a movie house in New York. And uh, boy, yeah, she's, a, she's no good. <laughs> good. Well, we should wrap this up then. And uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you, David, for doing this. This was such a delight. Oh, uh, yes. It was so nice of you all to come on an August day. Uh, and a Wednesday. Uh, what else happens on a Wednesday, too? At three That's in the <laughs> afternoon. And uh, some of the, you know, really wonderful people here. Uh, great. If you don't have a copy of the book, of course, I have to encourage you to buy it because it's a lot of fun. And it has great, this is, it has great rereadability value. It's a book that you can go through and then, oh, I'm going on a trip. What are, what, what, what mystery should I take with me? It's true. It, it can serve as a guide. And then I have another book, 100 Autobiographies, that we never got to, but... Well, we, uh, could, we could take the show on the road. <laughs> Good, all right. Thank you all. Thank you so much, everybody. That was Cornell University Press editorial director Mahindra Kingra and Cornell author David Lehman, author of the new book, The Mysterious Romance of Murder. If you'd like to purchase David's new book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>